We've been studying through the book of Proverbs, and uh, you may not remember this, but the very first week uh, that we began in this study, I pointed out that the idea of a proverb is not unique to the book of Proverbs. It's certainly a form of communication that's found in other places. And I came across an interesting proverb this week that I think is related to our discussion this evening. The proverb says this, before borrowing money from a friend, decide which you need most. And tonight, we're going to be talking about issues of borrowing and debt. And in particular, going to be warning in some ways uh, about foolishly borrowing money or foolishly uh, putting yourself at risk. If you would open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. In Proverbs 5, the father had been warning his son to avoid adultery. And he's going to come back about with similar warnings in just uh, the end of this chapter into the next chapter. But in the first part of, of Proverbs 6, he gives three lessons. And I debated how to, to go about it, but ultimately I decided to, uh, to try to take them individually so we could try to focus in a little bit more on each of these. The first lesson he deals with the issue of debt or giving up, becoming surety for your neighbor. And that's in the first five verses. In the second, beginning in verse six, a familiar proverb, go to the ant, you sluggard. He talks about the sloth, the slothfulness and the sluggard. And then in, in verses 12 uh, to 19, he talks about uh, the troublemaker or the scoundrel. And in a sense, each of these is warning about a kind of folly to avoid and probably gets progressively worse. We'll see tonight in this first section, he still begins by saying, my son. In the next one, go to the ant, you sluggard. He doesn't say my son, he just says you sluggard. And then at the the final section, he warns about God's judgment. And so it seems as if it goes from worse to worse as you go along in this chapter. And yet it starts out pretty bad. The warning we see here right away at the beginning of chapter 6 is a strong warning that the father gives his son to be careful about. And what is the situation? Proverbs 6 verses 1 and 2 give us a situation. The situation is you have become surety for a stranger. My son, if you've become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger. They have surety is, is you've co-signed on their debt. You have committed to cover the other person's debt. And so now you are responsible for it. And that uh, word, uh, given a pledge, you might see a note. It's almost the idea of of striking the palm. It seems that that was uh, perhaps a ritual that was done uh, to to seal the deal. Maybe in some ways similar to the idea of we shook hands on it, but it was probably even a bit more formal than we might think because there were witnesses involved. And, And so in some senses, we might say, you signed the dotted line. You put your name to it. You've now committed yourself. And you've done it, verse 1 says, for your neighbor and for a stranger. And that has created some confusion because it seems as if those might be two different people. Your neighbor, we might think of as someone you know well. A stranger, someone you don't know that well. And so some people say that, that perhaps what's being discussed here is you have... Uh, be taken up surety for a stranger 
who's borrowed from your neighbor, uh, or perhaps flipping it. I, I think probably the best way to understand it is neighbor is really just kind of a generic, someone you have a relationship with, someone else. I don't think neighbor here is meant to be someone really close to you. I, I think it's saying another person, and that is further defined by saying a stranger. Someone you have a relationship with, not someone you actually know that well. Someone that you're not that familiar with. And so you're in this situation now, and what the father says in verse 2 is this is a bad situation. Because notice how he describes it. You have been snared with the words of your mouth, and have been caught with the words of your mouth. It seems that it was probably a rash decision a decision that was not well thought through. So that now you're actually in a snare. You didn't see it coming, but now you're trapped, and now you're caught. What's interesting in this verse is that often in in Hebrew poetry, we've already seen this in verse 1, you have similar statements made, and yet it changes the wording in both situations. So verse 1, I think it's similar, surety for your neighbor, pledge for a stranger. Verse 2 actually repeats a phrase. You've been snared, what? With the words of your mouth. And you've been caught, what? With the words of your mouth. Which is a bit unusual. Why does Solomon not change it up? Why does he repeat this verbatim? And I think he probably repeats it verbatim because he's emphasizing, you are the one who got yourself in this situation. You're the one who said it. These words came from your mouth, and that's why you're now snared. And that's why you're now caught. And there is a continual warning about this issue of becoming surety for someone else in the book of Proverbs. And I want to look through the book of Proverbs to kind of see this a little bit. We're going to dip into the latter chapters to see Solomon emphasizing this truth over and over again. Turn to chapter 11 of Proverbs. Chapter 11 and verse 15. I warn you of that so you can keep your fingers nimble. We are going to come back to chapter 6. We're going to go through the book together this evening. The Proverbs 11, verse 15. He who is a guarantor for a stranger, same idea there as a pledge, someone who has put up surety for a stranger, will surely suffer for it. But he who hates being a guarantor is secure. And that, that phrase being guarantor is, is that same one we saw made a pledge, striking of the hands. So if you say, I never want to do this, you're in a much better place. You're in a place of security as opposed to instead the one who's going to suffer for it. Go to chapter 17 and verse 18. Proverbs 17, 18. A man lacking in sense pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. That's an interesting phrase, a man lacking in sense. Uh, it's kind of the idea is you just, you don't have everything quite functioning the way you should up there. It's not all working the way it should, and that's why you're doing this. If you, had, if you were a bit sharper, you wouldn't make this choice. Proverbs 20 and verse 16. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger, and for foreigners, hold him in pledge. And a very similar idea in chapter 27 and verse 13. Go there. 
take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger, and for an adulterous woman hold him in pledge. Now, why does it say take his garment? Well, in Israelite law, you weren't actually allowed to hold someone else's cloak as a pledge for their payment because they needed their cloak basically as, as a blanket. It's what they needed to sleep in. And, but the pledge was basically saying, if I can't repay, then you get to keep this. And so I think what Solomon here is saying is, you've already defaulted. Your pledge is gone. Might as well just go ahead and take his coat. If he becomes, if he becomes secure, surety, if he puts up a pledge for a stranger, especially if he got duped by some pretty woman, just go ahead and take it. He's already in trouble. Go to chapter 22 and verse 26. Proverbs 22, verse 26. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? And so why is Solomon constantly warning about this issue? Well, I want, first of all, to to make sure that we don't misunderstand this at all. Solomon isn't saying, only use your money for you and your family. He actually argues against that regularly in this book. Go, if you would, to chapter 14. Proverbs 14 and verse 21. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Later down in that chapter, verse 31. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious, giving to the needy, honors him. Go to chapter 19. And verse 17. 19-17. One who is gracious or generous to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. Go over to 21 and verse 13. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. And then 22, verse 9. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. And finally, at the very end, in Proverbs 31, discussing the virtuous woman. And verse 20 says this about the virtuous woman. She extends her hand to the poor. And she stretches out her hands to the needy. And so the issue isn't you are giving money to someone who is poor and needy. That's not the concern Solomon has. Something else is the problem. Something else is is his concern as he discusses becoming surety for a stranger. And so why is this such a big deal? Why is he constantly warning about this situation? And I think there's, there may be a few reasons to, to think uh, about why he's doing this. And I, I don't know that any of these we could definitively say it is the reason. I think probably all of them may contribute at some level. One is the uncertainty of it. That if you are giving to someone, you know what's going out. 
you know this is how much I'm, I'm offering. This is the need. I'm meeting the need. If you're becoming surety for someone else, there's risk and uncertainty that's involved that I think Proverbs would be warning us about. Recognizing you don't know what the future is going to hold, and so wisdom would not put yourself at risk such that if they can't pay it back, now they're going to take your bet. Because you foolishly put yourself at risk. Related to that is, is probably the emphasis as well that it's not just you, but your family that would be hurt from this. The decisions you make don't just affect you. And we can see that actually in other places in the Scripture. I want to ask you to turn there. In 2 Kings 4, you might remember the, the story about the widow who comes to Elijah. And she's in debt, and Elijah ends up helping her by having her pour oil into the, the vases so she can get what she's going to pay. But when she comes to Elijah, listen to how she describes her situation. A woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. You know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. That he got himself in a situation in which in order to pay back his debt, his children were going to have to go into slavery. And so in this culture, and in our culture, we need to recognize the decisions we make financially can't have ramifications beyond us. And so there is this warning as we think about this. And related to that, that with that uncertainty, there probably is also a heightened element of risk in this situation. The emphasis primarily isn't on debt itself here, it's on taking on debt for someone else. And I think people have rightly pointed out that why do you need to take debt for this person if they're good for it? Why do you need to co-sign if they can handle it themselves? That if they were a good investment, whoever's lending the money probably would just lend it to them. And so the fact that you're having to put up security for them should be assigned to you already. Maybe I should rethink about this. And then finally, I think there is probably an emphasis in general about the concern of debt. Go to Proverbs 22, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. That there is a concern and warning about going into debt. Because you do need to repay it, and you functionally become a slave to the one to whom you borrow from. And again, we can't say for certain. I think there's a possibility that that the kind of situation that Solomon might be envisioning is, is perhaps even a business venture of some kind. In which someone comes and says, hey, I've got a great business proposition for you. Do you want in? And when you do something like that, often your thought is, hey, I can get money easy and fast. Think about in the gambling situation. Hey, this is a sure bet. And when you hear that, what should you automatically think? There are no sure bets. Solomon is describing someone who I think has made a rash decision and has put himself now in a difficult situation 
in which now he is described as being in a trap and in a snare because he has put himself up as a pledge for a stranger. And yet, Solomon doesn't say, so just go back on your word. I mentioned already, he he emphasizes twice, it was the words of your mouth that got you in this situation. And consistently in Scripture, there is an emphasis that those who are godly hold fast to their word, even to their own harm. Psalm 15 describes this. Begins with this question, Lord, who may reside in your tent? And who may settle on your holy hill? One who walks with integrity and practices righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. And a couple verses later, it says this. He takes an oath to his own detriment and does not change. Solomon doesn't said, you got yourself in a bad situation, so just default. That's not how you deal with it. How are you to deal with it? Well, that's what he says in the remainder of this section, verses 3 to 5. And essentially, what he says is this. Be relentless to, to deliver yourself from the situation. To get yourself out of it. I think we could probably say, in, in light of, as I mentioned, the emphasis that he's not simply saying default, that any, any legitimate way you can, get out of it. There's a series of basically seven commands. And all of them are saying, find some way to deliver yourself, which is what it begins with and ends with. Verse 3, do this, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. And again, the neighbor here is a bit ambiguous. Is he talking here about the the neighbor that you owe the money to, who's the the lender, the creditor? Or is he saying the neighbor that you have put up security for? Because the reality is, you're at the mercy of both of them. If you commit yourself to someone else's debt, if they don't pay it back, you're responsible. And so you're at their mercy as to whether or not they pay it back. But you're also at the mercy of the creditor. Because the creditor can ask you to pay it back. And and as far as I know, I admit I'm not a financial advisor. But from what I've seen of the ways that that laws work in our land, if you co-sign, they can come to you even before they go to the other person. And so you're now responsible. You're at the mercy of both the lender and your fellow debtor. And so whoever it is, and it might potentially be either one in this situation, the answer is figure out a way to get yourself out of this situation. So since you've come into the hand of your neighbor, go. Get busy. Don't wait another moment because you are in a bad situation. Humble yourself. You might have a translation that that says, uh, weary yourself, exhaust yourself. And that might be what's going on. I think humble yourself is probably a better way to understand this. And, And if I can say it this way, Don't worry about maintaining your dignity. You could keep your dignity and lose everything else. And so beg, plead, grovel, get on your knees, and importune your neighbor. Now that's a a phrase that we almost never hear. 
Um, the, the, the language there, some people have said it's almost the idea of bully your neighbor. Uh, certainly, it's maybe the idea of badger your neighbor. Pester him. Make it so that it's better for him to remove you from this debt than it is to make you pay for this debt. So whatever you can do to get out of this, figure out a way, plead, go over and over and over again to try to remove yourself from this situation. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Do not rest until it's finished. This is more important to you, and it's urgent. And so be diligent to deliver yourself from this. Again, verse 5, deliver yourself how? Like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Like a trapped animal. Ever seen an animal trapped in a cage trying to get out? They go crazy, right? Trying everything they can to get out of this situation. And Solomon says, you got to be like that. Because this is desperate. This is urgent. And so get yourself out of this situation. Do everything honorable. Do everything legitimate to deliver yourself. Now how should we think about Solomon's words in our days? And I I think we do need to to wrestle a little bit with, with cultural variances. The reality is we, I think, live in a culture in which debt is everywhere. And that's both bad and not bad, if I can say it that way. Because the situation of how borrowing and lending works in our day, I, I think that, that perhaps some of the strong language against debt and borrowing may not fully apply as much in our day, just the nature of how business functions. But that, does, that should still make us stop and think, okay, so I need to be very careful and very cautious about any kind of debt that I take on. Because I think the principle still applies. The borrower is slave to the lender. And that there is the reality that things can go bad such that they're now taking your bed from you. you, you you've defaulted and now you have to pay. And there are situations in which we might say, you got into that, and and maybe it's not necessarily because of poor choices on your end. That there are maybe medical debts, bills, things that, that is very difficult in our day in which to avoid some of these things. But there's also a lot of debt in our day that is possible to avoid. I looked up some of the statistics about a debt in our day. The average person in America has over $5,000 in credit card debt, has over $17,000 in a personal loan, almost $21,000 in a car loan, almost $40,000 in a student loan, almost $40,000 in a home equity line of credit, and about $220,000 in a mortgage. And the average debt across households in general is $96,000. Now my guess is some of you have debt. And again, I don't think debt is inherently something you'd say I need to avoid. But certainly we need to think carefully about debt. 
Because when we find ourselves in debt, we are responsible to, to get ourselves out. And sometimes that debt actually can keep us from doing the kinds of things that God would have us to do. You might be familiar with uh, a man named Dave Ramsey. He's a financial advisor. And he has a phrase he likes to use quite a bit to encourage people to think differently about how they live. And he says, live like no one else. The point being, don't go into debt. Save, scrimp. Uh, Be wise about your finances. Live like no one else so that you can live like no one else. So that eventually you'll be in a situation in which you can have all the nice things that you want. There is another phrase that I think is actually a much more biblical phrase. But unfortunately, it doesn't use it nearly enough. Because I think to live like no one else, that you can live like no one else, is honestly not a whole lot different than what Solomon's warning about, potentially. Because why do we go into debt? Often it's because of greed. We want something now, we don't want to wait for it. Now, having nice things isn't necessarily a problem. But if your goal is to say, I'm going to, to be wise so that I can really have nice things, I don't know that that's a whole lot better. The phrase he uses, I think, is much more biblical is this. Live like no one else. So you can give like no one else. That if you are wise with your finances, you're now freed up to be able to use the gifts that God has given you to provide for your family and to care for others. And so we need to be very cautious as we take on any kind of debt. Certainly, we shouldn't be foolish like the person who becomes surety for a stranger. To realize the significant ramifications that taking on debt actually entails. And I think as well, there's a reminder that we are responsible for the commitments we make. And so let's be careful about making these commitments. That, that probably one of the principles undergirding Solomon's warning is don't make rash commitments because you're going to have to fulfill them. And unfortunately, in our day, I mentioned shaking hands. Someone shaking hands on an agreement almost is meaningless. Because commitments don't seem to matter too much to us. I think it was Kennedy who who had the phrase, we do this not because it is easy, but because it's hard. I saw a sign this week that probably better encapsulates our culture's mindset. We do this not because it's easy, but because we thought it would be easy. And we found ourselves stuck. And if I could encourage us, often try to think about parenting in this issue. Make sure your children understand the importance of fulfilling the commitments that they have made. You know, you might think it's not that big of a deal to commit yourself to being part of some athletic team at school and then deciding I don't really want to do it and so pulling out. But we've got to really think through the the wisdom of saying, did you commit yourself to this? Then you need to carry it through. Even if it wasn't quite what you thought it would be. Even if it's a little harder than you might think. That we need to be people who honor our commitments. We don't quit something just because we don't like it. We fulfill our word. And I think certainly we see that in, in, in making significant commitments like marriage. Yes, we need to be very careful about making rash commitments. 
And sometimes people enter into marriages without thinking it through. They go to Vegas and they come back married and forgot why. And that's not the only kind of situations people rush headlong and foolishly into a kind of commitment. Then later on they decide, I don't want to be in this commitment anymore. But from a biblical perspective, not wanting to be in it isn't really sufficient to get out of it. And I'd encourage us even on, on minor levels. Don't be the friend who's constantly having to backtrack and say, I said I was going to do this, but I can't now. I said I was going to be here, but I can't now. Yes, sometimes unforeseen circumstances come up and you aren't able to carry through. But maybe be a more, bit more thoughtful before you commit to yourself to consider whether or not you can actually carry it out. But then finally, it's interesting. Solomon warns over and over again, don't be surety for someone. But that kind of language is actually used a couple other places in Scripture. I want you to see that. Go to Job chapter 17. Job chapter 17. Verse 1. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Surely mockers are with me, and my eye gazes on their provocation. Lay down now a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there that will be my guarantor? Who will be the one to make a pledge for me? And in a sense, Job seems to be saying, God, won't you be that one for me? Won't you be my surety? Go to Psalm 119. In verse 122 of Psalm 119. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. The psalmist here is basically saying, God, be surety for me. The same thing that Solomon says, don't do for someone else. The psalmist is saying, God, would you do that for me? And, and, and again, why is it a danger to become surety for someone else? Because if they can't pay your debt, you're going to have to pay it, Right? And so you don't want to become surety for someone that you know they can't pay their debt. And as God would look at us and would say, would I be surety for them? Would he look at us and say, can they pay their debt? And what's the answer? You can't. And yet, what did God do? Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Now, as you're turning there, I want to just reference what Paul says in Philemon. In Philemon, verses 18 and 19, Paul says to Philemon about his slave Onesimus, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. What is he essentially saying? I'll be a pledge for Onesimus. 
I will pay any debt he owes you. And then he goes on to say this. I, Paul, have written this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. And what we see in a sense Paul's laying out there is a picture. Onesimus, or Philemon, all your debts were paid. And so would you be willing to forgive Onesimus his debts? And how were his debts paid? Well, Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and in uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He did, in a sense, become surety for us. And he paid the debt that we could not pay. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to try to think carefully about exactly how we can seek to live out these principles in our day. Lord, we, we want to be wise with the resources you have given us. We recognize the, the dangers and risks of debt. And Lord, we want to be able to use what you have given for your glory, not just to waste it on ourselves, not, not just to see what we can accumulate Lord, we thank you that even though we fail in this, that our greatest debt has already been wiped out through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.